Well, good morning to Salem Chapel 2022. It's my first opportunity to be able to say that uh, to you in this new year, and we are glad you're in this auditorium. Uh, I know we have probably more than usual uh, people that call this place their home watching us online. I've gotten texts this week and like, hey, I'm not feeling well or whatever it is, and so we're glad that you are tuning in online, that we can provide that for you. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Turn, into, turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 there. As you're turning there, let me just uh, share with those who may be new with us, haven't been uh, with us since we have been in this series, that you may believe we're walking through the book of John, this gospel that the apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the ones that walked closest with Jesus, wrote, and in John 20, he mentions the reason why he wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That that is his aim, that we would believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life for us to replace, to be a substitute for our sinful life, that he died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that our sin deserved because the wages of our sin is death, that he rose again three days later showing that God Almighty, the Father in heaven, accepted Jesus' life and death for us. And so he rose again three days later so that he could be victorious on our behalf as we just sung in this last song. And so what the Lord wants us to get as we walk through this book, this gospel, is that we would believe that as our own, that if you are here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you're relying on the good that you can do understanding there's not enough that good that can warrant or replace the sin that you've done, but Jesus Christ came for you. He lived and he died and he rose again. For those of us who are here today and we've accepted that gift of salvation uh, in our life, then what we need to be reminded as we walk through this book, and no different today, is that we would believe that Jesus is our Savior in the sense that he sustains us in whatever we're going through, whatever we're experiencing, whatever sin we might get caught up in, whatever circumstance that might be come upon us or sin that's been committed against us, that Jesus is also the Savior of those things. And so this morning's no different. As I said, we're in John 8, verses 1 through 11. Now, I am going to say this because hopefully you're following along in our reading plan uh, we put together a reading plan, so though we will not teach on every verse in the book of John, it's an impossibility to do it in the time frame that we have um, in our sermon calendar, we are allowing you and wanting you, I should say, is a better way to say it, to read through the entire book of John. And so we put together a reading plan for you. You can access it on our website, salemchapel.org. You can grab one of those at our Welcome Center. We have those printed out for you if for some reason you've misplaced it or you're brand new. So you would have read much more in this last week than we're gonna cover today, but you would have read these 11 verses if you're following along in our reading plan already. Now, some of you have been perplexed all week. You're like, man, I don't know, I don't know, Johnny, I don't know what to do with this little bracket at the top of chapter eight. Um, if you're reading in the ESV, which is the version that we teach from, not because it's better than every other version, that's just the version that we chose to read from, it says this, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, and you've like been all in knots all week. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? 
Like, am I not supposed to read chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verses 1 through 11? Well, the answer to that is obviously no, or we would not be teaching verses 1 through 11. But what you need to understand is, the, if you don't know this already, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so we do not today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but at the same time, I don't want to be, just not say anything at all. Uh, we do not have any of the original manuscripts, I'm going to give you a really big theological term that's going to make you sound important to your friends who maybe are not here today. We do not have the original autographs of the Bible. We're in the New Testament, so specifically the New Testament. What I mean by autograph, I don't mean like what you got for Christmas from your favorite athlete. What I mean is, is if you were to handwrite a note, because it was written by your hand, that note would be, the autograph would be the original copy of what you wrote. If I came along afterwards and copied it, that would not be the original, it would be a copy. So what you wrote by your hand would be called the original autograph. So we don't have any of those from any of the people that wrote the Bible. We don't have the original of John's gospel. But what we do have is we have many, many, many copies. In fact, there's 2,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The earliest dates around to one of the copies or, or a partial copy is around 100 AD. So the last book of the Bible was Revelation written in AD 90. Why do I say all that? We've got 27 copies, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 95% of them agree with one another in all points that affect, would affect any sort of doctrine or what we believe about Jesus or what we believe about God or any of those things. That in itself is a miracle because as, if you are like my house, what I may say may be completely interpreted or heard differently than what someone else may say in my house. So we've got 2,700 of those. Now at the same time, what we do is we look and say, well, the oldest ones would automatically be the most accurate ones, right? Because they would have been the oldest copies. That's common sense. So all that's happening here is saying this passage of Scripture is not in some of the oldest manuscripts that we have. But what it's not saying is, is that we can just throw it out. It's simply just making a point. Now, here's what we can say. You could say this shouldn't be in here. But guess what? The principles that we are going to look at today can be verified by many other passages of Scripture, so you can't get out of it. And if you're there and you're like, you know what, it's in my Bible, I'm going to read it, I'm going to believe it, then that's awesome as well. All I'm saying is, guess what? We're teaching chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 this morning. So hopefully you're there. All right, let's start in verses 1 through 11. I summarized, you have no idea how vast that subject is, but... Um, I've had to read more books on that stuff than I ever care to remember, and I don't remember many of them, and I don't feel like I've lost at all in not remembering some of those things. But nevertheless, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you're there, say you're there. Awesome. Verse 1, then went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and they sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now we have the motivation of these scribes and Pharisees clearly stated in verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. We'll talk about 
what that's referring to. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So as I mentioned earlier, if you've read what we assigned in our reading plan, you actually read from chapter 7 all the way through verse 11 of today. And here's what's going on in that chunk of, of Scripture if you didn't read it is you have Jesus' popularity growing, which is challenging the Pharisees' platform. Because after all, the Pharisees were looked at as the ones that you would go to for, for, uh, them, for them to tell you about spiritual matters and what God's word says and what godly living looked like and what the standard was and how you should model your life and to live like them. And what Jesus is doing in, in many instances is he is undermining some of the things that the Pharisees have laid that were extra biblical to what God wrote or totally contrary to what God wrote or done as we're going to see in this passage of scripture in a very legalistic self-righteousness and so Jesus is challenging the teaching of the Pharisees and the Pharisees don't like it and so they are looking for ways to undermine who Jesus is the authority that he is gaining the popularity that he is gaining and so they put Jesus in a situation in a dilemma and here's the dilemma. This woman that they bring in this crowd who's been caught in adultery, they're asking Jesus, Jesus, what are we supposed to do? And here's the dilemma. Well, if he says, no, 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 you shouldn't kill her, then they can accuse him of being contrary to what's found in the law of Moses, particularly in the law of Leviticus and how they handled civil law and different things like that. And so they would be like, ah, oh, Jesus, we got you. If he says that she should, that... Um, that she should live, then he contradicts the law of Moses. If he says she should die, then I thought we have a merciful Jesus here. I thought he's a friend of sinners. Not to mention that Jews could not put anyone to death according to Roman law because Israel is under Roman rule, Roman captivity. So they think they have Jesus in this pickle, in this dilemma. Here's what you need to understand contextually, though, about this law that the people are referring to. It was next, next to impossible to put someone to death for adultery. Here's why. There had to be witnesses. There had to be two or three of them. It couldn't be one person. There had to be two or three of them. And they had to observe the actual act taking place. Not I saw you in a compromising situation, you shouldn't have been alone with that person, but actually in the very act. I don't need to get any more descriptive than that, do I? Hope not. Not only that, but their testimony of the two or three had to agree completely with one another. The reason why I say that is to show you that this is a bogus situation that's happening here. Not necessarily that this woman very well maybe have caught, been caught in adultery. We don't know. 
But the way that it was being handled wasn't even according to the law that these Pharisees are referring to, is what I want you to understand contextually. Now, I think it's important that I at least give you some different things that you could be stoned for in the law. Not that stoning was happening every day or you wouldn't even have anybody living during this time. Here's why. Here's what you could be stoned for. Stoned for stealing. Some of us would already be out. Stoned for breaking the Sabbath, like one day a week, you're supposed to rest and not work. You could be stoned for being involved in witchcraft. You could be stoned for blasphemy, so taking the Lord's name in vain. You could be stoned for idolatry, putting anything else as a priority over worshiping the Lord. You could be stoned for being rebellious against your parents. What's my point in saying all this? Guess what? You and I all could be stoned, right? Like, I wouldn't be around, would you? Here's the title of the message this morning. It's just these three simple words. Drop your rock. Drop your rock. Well, what do we mean by rock? Here's what we mean by rock. A rock is a picture of a verdict or judgment we hold against someone. So what this morning, as we've already had a week into 2022, I can't think of a better thing to say to ourselves, man, as I start this year, let me make sure that I'm not holding on to rocks, verdicts, or judgments that I'm holding over someone or against someone. So I just want to ask you, what's your rock this morning that you're holding on to? What is it? What is it? And can we just, just for a moment, pause and just ask the Lord to allow our lives to be sensitive and obedient to the rock that Jesus is wanting us to let go today. God, would you do that? Lord, would you show us? Allow us not to be dismissive to that question, but allow us to be introspective and say, Lord, where am I? holding on to a verdict or judgment against someone. And Lord, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, may our lives be ready to receive the grace and the mercy that you have for us that will motivate us to let go of whatever that is. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say this as a precursor as well from the beginning, because whenever we're talking about a subject like this, oftentimes there are situations where we have had things done against us to us. They've been sinful. They've been wicked. I would even go far to say for some of the things, they've even been demonic because of the depth of the wickedness that has been done against us. And so as we walk through this passage of scripture and talk about dropping our rocks, here's what I want you to understand in this room and watching online is I understand that there are some things that you are walking through or dealing with that are so painful and so hurtful because they are things that no one should ever have had done to them. And so by no means as we talk about this subject are we saying that what that person did or those circumstances were right they should have been done, that we're condoning them, whatever it is. I know when we're talking about a passage on forgiveness and dropping rocks and the, the motivation to do so, we are dealing with a nuanced subject. And so I just want you to understand this morning 
that in no way when we talk about this are we alluding to the fact that whatever was done to you was right, was righteous, or was godly. And by God's grace, we have a way to care for people in those extreme circumstances and those who are just dealing with a hurt this morning of some sort, and it, it is so painful to you. We've had so many help through Restore, and I'm thankful that we have that. But I just want to say that and be sensitive to that, because I know sometimes we can hear things through our hurt, we can hear things through our pain that is not from the Lord at all. And so I just want to say that as a caveat. But here's, here's the idea I want you to get today, is that Jesus is inviting you to drop your rock. That's what he wants this morning. That's what he wants as he head into this new year. Now, if you're like me, man, I've had many rocks that I've need to drop. If you're like me, even this week, and knowing the passage of Scripture that I've been teaching on, examining my life and saying, Holy Spirit, where are the rocks that I've been holding on to? But here's a question that we all should be asking at, at some point, whether it's right now, it's this. Why should I drop the rock? That I have every right in my mind or society says I have every right to throw at someone else. Like I've got my rock. I didn't even need to think about what it was. I've got it. And I can give you five reasons why I have the right to throw it at someone else. So what are the reasons why Jesus wants you to drop your rock? Well, let me give them to you. There's three of them. Here's the first one. It's found in verses three through six. We already read it because we pick up rocks too quickly. Here's why I say that, because of the scenario that we're in. I mean, these scribes and Pharisees, we don't know where, we find, where they find this lady. We don't know if it was a setup. We don't even know if this lady was truly guilty of what she did. But if, if that's the place that you are, we know that she was, because Jesus at the end says, go and sin no more. But we don't know all the ramifications that took place up to this point. All that we know is, is these scribes and these Pharisees found this woman. They grabbed her. They threw her in the midst of this crowd and what it shows me is we can be very quick to pick up rocks. See, there's two types of people, I think, in relationship to others that we have to be careful of. Not two types of people, but two types of people we need to be careful that we are not these people. And the first is the magnifying glass Christians. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. The magnifying glass Christians they believe that their spiritual gift is to tell you what you're doing wrong. You ever find any of those people? What's scary is, is if you are one of those people, you don't know it. But everybody else does. But these are the types of people, man, that, you know, they pride themselves in how much they know about the Bible. They pride themselves in being able to say, these are all the things that I don't do. But they are quick to identify and to tell you where you are not doing well. In fact, we have some that are so good at it is that they would say, well, my proverbial magnifying glass has a light. So I can be just extra beneficial to your life. We know those types of people, right? We would all say thumbs up, thumbs down. Those are people that you want to emulate. Thumbs up. Thumbs down, yeah, that's what I thought. But then there's this other group of type of people that, that we can be, and uh, we would 
I would describe them as the blindfold Christians. Like, they're the people that are like, well, you know, who am I to judge? Who am I to get involved in anybody's life? Who am I to ever point out anything? Who am I to care? I'm just going to walk around blindfolded and, and, you know, whatever works for you works for you and whatever works for me works for me and we're just going to kind of walk around and, yeah, I know the Bible's our guide, but kind of I don't want to be confrontational and I don't want to appear judgmental and so I'm just going to kind of live my life with my eyes closed. Well, that's not what the Lord's getting after either. The Lord doesn't want us to be magnifying glass Christians. He doesn't want us to be blindfold Christians. But what I want to point out in this passage of Scripture is that these scribes and Pharisees cared nothing for this woman. Nothing. She was a means to an end to make themselves look better. I mean, it says it there in this passage of Scripture. She was a mean sin. Why do I say that? Where was the man? When you were reading this passage of Scripture this week, did you ask yourself that question? Hey, where's the dude? Like last time I checked, it takes two to tango, so where's the dude? Oh, just forgot about him. This wasn't at all care for the woman. This wasn't at all like, like hey, we're concerned about you, that you're committing this sin that, that has consequences emotionally, physically, relationally, and in, in, in what you will experience. Like, we care for No, no, no. They had one concern, and that was to make themselves look better. I want you to write this sentence down because it's so important to understanding the tendency that we may have to pick up rocks too quickly. Maybe because we're a magnifying glass Christian. It's this. If you're wrong in the way you are showing someone what is right, you are wrong even if you're right. Let me read it again. If you're wrong in the way you are showing someone what is right, you are wrong even if you're right. Was this woman wrong in what she was doing? Absolutely. You can look at many passages of Scripture that say that we are not to be committing adultery. Nobody would argue that. Even moral people that don't believe in Jesus would say that that's wrong. So was she wrong? Absolutely she was wrong. But the way that the scribes and the Pharisees were handling it was also wrong, which made them wrong. Didn't make the sin right. But it made the way that they handled it wrong. Let me give you a very vanilla illustration that has happened in our household many times that I've had to ask my kids for forgiveness. When I tell them, particularly I can think of instances when they were much younger, and I tell them, do not do this. And they chose to disobey me. And the consequence of why I said not to do it happened when they did it. So I wish I could have more stories than less stories of me saying, oh, Lily and Lucas, it's okay. You did wrong. Go to your room. We're going to talk about the punishment. Like literally that tone. I would like to say that that happened more times than not, but unfortunately it did not. What would happen? I'd get angry. I would yell. I would blow up. I would say, you know, whatever it was. And you know what I would oftentimes have to do? I would not walk in there and say, guys, you weren't wrong in what you did. I would say, Lily Lucas, I need you to forgive me 
because I acted out of anger. I was wrong in the way that I handled it. Would you forgive me? Was I condoning what they did? Absolutely. But what was, what's my point? Is I was handling something wrongly, therefore I was wrong. And so many times, I mean, this is one of the biggest reasons, I'm just gonna tell you, this is one of the biggest reasons that I, that I face and why people don't wanna have anything to do with the church anymore. Is the church something that God has ordained? Absolutely. Is the church something that's beneficial to someone's soul? Absolutely. Is the church something that I should be involved in? Absolutely. But unfortunately, because there's so many stories of doing something in the wrong way, they want to have nothing to do with it. And too often it's because we pick up rocks too quickly. Can I ask you this this morning? If you're like, Johnny, I have every reason to hold this rock. I have every reason what they did was wrong. Can I ask you this? What's your goal in being right? Have you ever asked yourself that? What's the goal? What's the goal in me holding this rock? Is it care and concern for the person's well-being? Or is it care and concern for the agenda that I have? We hold rocks too quickly. We pick them up too quickly, I should say. Here's the second thing. It's found in the beginning part of verse 7. We hold rocks too tightly. Why do I say that? Because it says, and as they continued to ask him. So this phrase, it's at the beginning of verse seven. If you were to look at it in the Greek and the tense that it's written in, much like we have tenses in the English language, if you look at the tense that it's written in, it has the idea of keep on asking. So in this passage of scripture, here's where we find ourselves. This woman is thrust into this crowd. She's caught in adultery. What does Jesus do as they're saying, Jesus, what are you gonna do? The law of Moses says this. What does Jesus do? He kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. He doesn't even respond to their questioning. But it says they continue to ask him. The idea is this. Uh, Jesus, what are you gonna do? Jesus, uh, don't you see this woman? What are you gonna do, Jesus? How are you gonna handle it? Are you gonna forgive her? Are you gonna condemn her? Are, can we throw our stones? What are you gonna do? Ha, 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 ha. If your parents, raise your hand if you get my idea. Yeah, yeah. Because if your kids are under the age of eight, you can definitely get this idea. They wouldn't let it go. They wouldn't let it go. They were holding on, holding on to these rocks too tightly. And unfortunately, we can find ourselves so attached to our judgments and our patterns of critique. You know what we also have to be careful of? And I've, I've found this in my own life through counsel and different things. When I've wanted to hold rocks too tightly, is when we hold them super tight, we can even find ourselves fictionalizing what even happened. Fantasize, man, they meant it when, I, when they said this, and they meant it when they said this, and they had the agenda when they said this, and when they did that. We start allowing our reasons why they did it to even affect maybe what actually happened. But here's what I've found in my life when I'm holding rocks too tightly, is we can find ourselves believing that if I let go of this rock, that somehow I am condoning that what happened to me was okay. That what happened to me wasn't wrong. 
And like I said at the beginning of this message with certain situations that are very sensitive that you may be dealing with, this has nothing to do with condoning what someone else did. This has to deal with me being concerned about my heart. And am I going to allow what was done to me that was sinful and was hurtful and was harmful, am I gonna allow what was done to me to poison my soul so that it's embittered and it's vengeful and it hurts relationships with people that do care for me? See, we have to ask ourselves, Lord, show me what you want me to see so that I don't hold on to rocks too tightly. Here's the third thing, third reason. And it's found at the end of verse seven all the way through the beginning of verse nine. Not only do we hold them or pick them up too quickly or hold them too tightly, but here's a big one. The reason why we need to let them go is because we all deserve to be stoned. We all do. The reason why I went through all those lists of why and the law, it was, it, it, you could be put to death for those things, is not to like be like, man, oh man, everybody was just dying left and right in the Old Testament. It wasn't that, wasn't the reason. It was to get across the idea, man, we're all guilty. That was the whole reason why God introduced the law, it was not so that everybody could be dying left and right. It was to motivate them to see that they needed to worship him, that they, realized, that they needed to see that they needed a substitute to be accepted by God. Man, we all deserve to be stoned. I wrote this down on my notes. Let me read it. When we don't embrace the reality of who we are by our nature, that we're all sinners, we end up being like the Pharisees and the scribes. Just looking for someone who's worse off than me that can make me feel better. Looking for someone who's worse off than me that can justify my actions in the way that I want to live looking for someone that I can step on to get myself further up in my idea of my self-righteousness. Man, when we don't remind ourselves that we are sinners saved by grace, we will act just like the Pharisees and the scribes. But when we see ourselves for who we are, apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf because of our sin, you know who we see ourselves as? The woman who's committed adultery. We see ourselves and say, man, Jesus, that's me. Or maybe not that very sin. But who am I to be classing sin? Sin is sin. Jesus, I deserve to be stoned. But for the grace of God, that's me. It's interesting, even think about what Jesus was doing. In Matthew chapter 5, though it's not in the book of John, on the Sermon of the Mount, what does Jesus say? He's like, you've heard it said, do thou shalt not commit adultery. We're going old King James. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But he says, but I say to you, whoever lusts on a woman has committed what? Adultery in his heart. What is Jesus getting after? We want to allow outside uh, influences and, 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 and literally just allowing ourselves to say, well, I'm not doing that outwardly, so therefore nobody knows my heart, so everyone sees me as this amazing model Christian, which allows me to pull out my magnifying glass when I need to, but Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. He says, no, 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 what's going on in your heart? Why does Jesus do that? 
because he's wanting to drive home the reality that we all are in need of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Listen to me. Some of you grew up in a church where you were taught by actions that the more spiritual you are, the bigger magnifying glass you had. And you know what's great about me living in this area of the country is because I can identify with people that grew up that way. Because I didn't grow up in North Carolina, but by the grace of God, I grew up in one of those churches as well. And you know what I've found? When everybody else is walking around with a magnifying glass, they're the ones that are the most guilty of all. Show me the most legalistic person, and I'll show you the person that has the most to hide. Because that's the way our nature works. But Jesus says, as he's riding in the sand, and they're saying, Jesus, what are you going to do? 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 Obviously, it must have been annoying to Jesus because he finally, he stands up and he says, let the one who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back down in writing. Now, I don't know if that's a parenting move that we all need to apply if we have kids where you just throw out a truth bomb and then just allow silence to happen, allow it to sizzle and marinate and do whatever it is. But that's what Jesus does here. And what begins to happen? Did you see it? Look at verse nine. When they heard it, they went away one by one. Now, I promised Aaron that I would not bring a bunch of rocks on here to throw on the stage because last time I did something like that, we had to replace like a quarter of the stage. So we're not doing that today. So just imagine with me. Just rocks, one drops, another drops, another drops, another drops. The crowd begins to thin. Not even to mention the shame that this woman must have been feeling as she's standing there with all these people yelling and screaming. And... But Jesus says those words and each person falls under conviction. But I never saw this before. I don't know if you saw this when you were reading this week, but this phrase, it began with the older ones. The older ones of the crowd. Or the ones that started leaving first, and after the older ones left, the other people began to leave, which just shows me once again the danger of the power of the mob. Right, some of you, there's a phrase that I don't know if it still even exists, but it was a phrase that, that was taught, that was said by, by people that were my mentors, where some of us, man, we just want to pull everybody else's red wagon. Oh, let me take up your offense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then after a while, we don't even know what we're upset about anymore. I'm sure there was some of that going on, but why the older ones? Well, think about it this. Think about when you were younger. Let's say 20s. Right, I like to say I'm still young, but if you're 20, you're going to say I'm not. So let's say you're in your 20s. I remember when I was in my 20s. Those were good years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I remember when I was in my 20s. And I remember the first church that I served at outside of seminary when I graduated from seminary. Northern Pennsylvania, this tiny little rural town Lori was from. Like town of 4,000 people. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. So just the opposite of what I was used to. And I remember the senior pastor there. We would go on these 45-minute drives to Williamsport to the closest Sam's Club to get supplies for the church. And I remember thinking to myself, man, we got other people that can do this. Why are we doing this? Because he wanted to pour into me and show me what it looked like to love and shepherd people. So here's what he would do. 
We'd have situations that were going on in the church and different situations and how we had to handle them, whether that be someone that was in sin or whatever it was and how would we approach it. I remember he would ask me, Johnny, what would you do? And I remember being my little self-righteous, idealistic self at 25 years old and being like, well, here's, here's what they did. Here's what the Bible says. This is the way we need to deal with it. Like I'm supposed to impress him or something. He'd been in ministry forever. And he was so patient with me. Man, you ought to be so glad you did not get me in my 20s. <laughs> he was so, and I look back on those years and I'm like, man, now I see what he was doing. I was so idealistic. I'm not saying if you're in your 20s that you can't be wise. Don't hear me say that. But you know, when I was young, the reason why I was so idealistic is because I hadn't dealt with enough situations, not condoning sin, but just how to exercise grace and mercy in it. You know why younger people are oftentimes can be that way? Because you haven't suffered enough. You haven't dealt with enough things. What about middle-aged? Because it says the older ones. Now, whether or not you may categorize yourself as middle-aged, I get it, right? But let's just think about middle-aged and, you know, you're not as judgmental maybe. You're, you have a little more of experience and failures, but what do you look? You look, you're like, hey, man, I've got, I've got younger kids. I'm getting to the pinnacle of my career. Things are starting to happen. And so you still have a tendency to see yourself as having somewhat all together, even though maybe not as idealistic as you were in your 20s. But what about older people? Notice I'm not putting an age to this. Older people are more experienced people. They've lived more life. You're more experienced at failure. You're less likely to throw a stone at someone else. Oftentimes because you're more weary of your weaknesses. And you know what you struggle with. Not that the, you're not growing in that and you, can, you, you couldn't say, man, I'm thankful for, I'm not that anymore. But at the same time, you're like, well, Lord, I still got a long way to go. What's my point? The older you are, the more you've seen that when you actually throw rocks, the damage that it can do. And I just think it's interesting that the older go first, which is just an example, once again, it's mentioned in 2 Timothy as well, the responsibility that the older have to teach the younger. And how sad it is that you have some individuals, some Christians who have been saved for so long, whose magnifying glass has not shrunk, but it's gotten bigger. Because according even to this situation with a mob who wanted to stone someone, when they hear Jesus' words, hey, are you without sin? They have enough self-awareness to say, not me, I gotta drop the rock. And we drop it because we're all deserved to be stoned. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, Johnny, like, I don't, I'm not holding any rock. Like, I don't know what you mean by rocks. Like, I'm not even a fan of rocks. Like, I don't like skipping rocks. I don't like rock music. Like, I don't have a rock garden. Like, I'm just, frankly, wanna tell you to kick rocks. Well, if that's you, I get it. But can I give you some rocks just very quickly so you're not too quick to dismiss what the Holy Spirit may be wanting you to see? Here's some types of rocks that we hold on to. Rocks of self-righteousness. We talked much about this that says, I am the standard. There's rocks of rightness that say, it's not my fault. 
Some of us in this room maybe are watching online. Man, your modus operandi for everything is to say, not my fault. Situations brought, not my fault. No, 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 I'm holding a rock because this is your fault. This is what you did. You should have done it this way. You didn't do it that way. You should have said it this way. You should have not said it that way. Not my fault. It's your fault. The Lord's asking you to drop that rock. Listen to me, if you're parenting this morning or you're in a relationship this morning of any sort, you know one of the greatest things that you need to do in that relationship is practice this, this phrase, I am sorry for blank, will you forgive me? It's sad to say that the amount of people that I know that, are, that can tell their story and be like, man, I, I grew up in church. My parents took me to church every week. You know, they, they, I learned all the Bible stories in the world, but my dad or my mom never said, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? How sad is that? Because we're holding on to rocks of rightness. How about this? Rocks of resentment that says, you hurt me, and so I'm holding on to this rock. I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to forgive. Rocks of revenge. You're going to pay. And you're just waiting for your chance to get your revenge. You know how I know when you're holding on to a rock of revenge, when something happens to that person who hurt you and you aren't sorrowful over their circumstances, you're actually reveling in it. You're holding the rocks of revenge. And how about this one? And we don't oftentimes think of this. Rocks of retreat that say, I will not let that happen again. It's not happening again. The only person I can trust is myself. No more deep relationships. No more being vulnerable with anyone. I will not give anyone the chance to hurt me again. And can I just say, I sympathize with that. If you live life long enough, you sympathize with that? Let me just also say, if any of these rocks or rocks that you're just like, I, I, Johnny, I know I need to let it go, I can't let it go, then once again, I'm so thankful that we as a church have a, have a way to disciple you in the gospel to help you with those things, and it's called Restore. You can sign up for it after church today. But I just wanna close with this. Where does the healing take place? How do you heal? Notice what it says at the end of this. In, at the end of verse nine, it says, when Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, Jesus stopped and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Where does the healing take place? Here's when it takes place. When you get alone with Jesus. That's where it starts. That's where it continues. When you get alone with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't say these words with her until he's alone. I love that Jesus breaks these gender prejudices that existed. Because a rabbi, a teacher, could not speak to a woman who wasn't his wife, even in public. What does Jesus do here? What does Jesus do with a woman at the well? Jesus is concerned about protecting this woman when none of these other men were even concerned about that. I love the care that Jesus places for this woman in spite of her sin. And listen to me, 
That's where healing takes place. When you come to Jesus and you get alone with Jesus and you're like, Jesus, I want to learn from you. I want to get in your word. I want to pray to you. I want to commune with you. I want to abide with you. Jesus isn't saying, yeah, it's about time you've been holding on to the rocks too long or it's about time you've been sinning too long. I can't believe you've done that. No, no, no. What does Jesus do? He offers grace and he offers mercy because he says to your women, woman, a term of respect, by the way, Who's here? She says, no one. And he says to her, but I want you to go and I don't want you to sin anymore. See, John 3, 17 says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? I've never had to run into someone and say, I need to convince you that you've sinned. But what does all of us need? We don't need another reminder of how bad we are. We need a reminder that there's grace and there's forgiveness. We need a reminder that there's not enough good that I can do to wipe away the things that I'm ashamed for. No, no, no. The shame is removed when I come to Jesus for forgiveness. I love that Romans 2 Verse four says, God's kindness leads me to repentance. Not God's judgment, not God's condemnation. Not fear that the Lord's gonna throw a massive rock and wipe me out. No, 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 it's God's loving kindness that leads me to repentance. And some of this this morning, you know what we need to do? We need to drop the rock and get alone with Jesus. And remind ourselves, Lord, but for the grace of God, I deserve to be stoned. That doesn't excuse the hurt that someone's done to me. That doesn't excuse the pain that they did to me. That doesn't, that doesn't make what they did right at all. But Lord, I can't control them. I can't control those circumstances, but I can control my heart with you. Man, this morning, this week, let's run to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's drop our rocks. Lord, we're here today to be reminded of your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. That, Lord, every one of us are this adulterous woman. But, Lord, I thank you that this passage of Scripture speaks against our tendency to want to be self-righteous. And you have modeled for us what it looks like to offer the grace of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that is offered by you because of our sin. God, may we be those types of Christians as we walk out of here. Not the magnifying glass, not the blindfold glass, but the grace given, grace received type of Christians that will offer what we have received. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?